The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Hello and welcome to Life of the Week, where leading historians delve into the lives of some of history's most intriguing and significant figures. From ancient Egyptian pharaohs and medieval warriors to daring 20th century spies. I am Spartacus. It's one of the most iconic lines of cinema history, from the 1960 film starring Kirk Douglas in the titular role. And it's come to define how we see the Roman rebel. However, according to Associate Professor of Roman History, Alison Futrell, the real man behind the legend has an even more fascinating story to tell. Speaking to Emily Briffitt, Alison shares how Spartacus's life has been told through a variety of skewed lenses reveals the background to his extraordinary uprising and explores how he's come to be seen as a revolutionary hero. Hi, Alison. Thank you so much for joining me on the History Extra podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Emily. In today's Life of the Week episode, we are going to be talking about Spartacus. And the big question to us from our listeners, top internet search query here is, was Spartacus real? Yes, Spartacus was real. He actually lived at a certain period of time and he had a huge impact on Rome. So who exactly was he? Could you give us a brief rundown, brief intro to his life? Everything we know about Spartacus does not come from Spartacus himself, but from people who were 
connected to, in sympathy with his opponents. And a lot of it comes from considerably after the time that we're actually most interested in, the lifetime of Spartacus himself. There were sources that were written close to the time that the war actually happened, but they don't really survive, or they survive only in, in fragments and later references by later authors. Uh, so that's a problem. Another problem is the lens of the data that we have available to us, very much sympathetic to elite power brokers in Rome. And that's not Spartacus at all. A lot of people have commented wisely, I think, that we have very little understanding of the perspective of ancient slaves, those that Spartacus would have been probably a lot more in sympathy with. So uh, that's how we know about Spartacus. What are the tidbits that we know about Spartacus's life? Uh, very, very little information. A number of authors talk about him being a Thracian, which could mean that he was from Thrace, one of the Thracian cultural group. Uh, some actually say that he's from a nomadic group of Thracians. Others say, mm, maybe that's not what the original source said. Maybe he's from the Maedi, who are a particular tribal group within the, the Thracian Cultural Federation. Uh, so that seems to be largely agreed upon by our ancient authors, the Thracian connection. Why it matters uh, has to do with some other comments made by other authors, that Spartacus himself had something of a military background, that he may have fought against Rome before, or he may have fought for Rome as an auxiliary, as someone who is recruited from an allied uh, group of people. And from that background, he turned and deteriorated, found himself on the, the wrong side of the Roman law, was eventually enslaved, possibly because he had turned to banditry and part of his uh, the disruption of his life that resulted from his military experience, and eventually became a gladiator in Capua. Something to keep in mind is this sort of side affiliation with Roman military matters is something that's shared by virtually the entire Mediterranean at this point. The Romans are constantly at war. They always have multiple armies in the field in different locations in the Mediterranean. Everyone in the Mediterranean basin is touched by Roman military imperialism, and a lot of them are set at great disadvantage, are made refugees, are displaced, are turned into slaves by that experience. And just a quick side note here before we carry on, because I really want to dig into that a little bit more. What sort of time frame are we talking about? The Spartacan War itself takes place from 73 to 71 BCE. So the, the first half of the first century before the Common Era. By this point in time, Rome is in charge, basically, of the entire Mediterranean basin. They are the dominant power in this area. This comes after hundreds and hundreds of years of incremental acquisition of territory and overwhelming, let's call it influence, shall we, uh, that the Romans have acquired through interactions with almost everyone else in their world. Obviously, you've said we can't quite get close to Spartacus's experience in his early life. But what do we know about what life was like for somebody with this sort of background? Maybe what was life like as a slave, for example? We can understand the larger context of the Spartacan War in a couple of different ways. We can look at the complete disruption 
suffered by the Mediterranean basin due to Rome's power structure. The fact that because of war, so many people have been sold into slavery themselves. They've been dispossessed of their ancestral lands. They've been driven to refugee status to wander the world in really severe economic hardships. And with that kind of vulnerability comes the real risk to slavery. Now, some people who are prisoners of war are likely to be trafficked into the Mediterranean-wide slave market as is. Other people, the lower and lower down they go, the closer they get to starvation. That kind of vulnerable makes them more susceptible to being kidnapped, to being removed from whatever context they're living in, and again, being recycled in a much larger slave market in the Mediterranean basin. This is something that we see happening across the Mediterranean and happening specifically in Italy as well for a number of different reasons. Starting with the Hannibalic invasion, a lot of people are suffering this kind of result to that intensive warfare. But there's been other kinds of war, two preceding slave wars in Sicily that likewise caused that this ripples of, of dislocation for a lot of people, as well as most recently, a revolt by Rome's allies, the social war, where people who have long been the frontline supporters of the Romans, people, members of the Italian Confederation, decide they just can't take it anymore. This disrespect, non-inclusion, lack of access that the Romans have been giving them. And they fight three or four years of civil war in Italy in the 90s BCE. So, you know, this is really very, very close uh, to the time that we're talking about. And people who are still alive have been suffering those impacts and impacts passing on to the next generation of sorts. I wonder, could you touch a little bit on this vulnerability felt by these people? This is something that really sets ancient slavery, I think, apart from other experiences of slavery that we know about from the vast sweep of, of human history. The fact that this is something that could happen to you, that was likely to perhaps happen to you, given different kinds of social standing and different lack of protection, I guess, that existed in Rome's hierarchy. Elites have more power to set up guards around themselves, to not place themselves in positions where this sort of thing is going to happen. And if they do get kidnapped or something like that, they have a network of resources that they can call upon to help buy them out of the situation. It's true, too, in warfare that the elite soldiers, the officer class, are less likely to be recirculated as slaves in the marketplace because their families can buy them immediately. They can ransom them back from whoever is holding them. So that, I think, is, is something that's important to keep in mind. Bear in mind, too, that our authors that survive to us are very much sympathizers with the elite and aren't necessarily presenting the point of view of people who are living much closer to the, the level of enslaved peoples, enslaved peoples in the countryside, in terms of you know, the expectations of their daily experiences and uh, the ways in which the patriarchal system of Rome is designed to grind them down in certain ways. Uh, so they're, they're more likely to be sharing that kind of deprivation, that kind of limitation on your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions uh, that is being experienced by slaves as well. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate 
isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. Would you say there's a sense of desperation there as well? I think there's a lot of desperation that one can find at various levels and in various locations in the larger Roman world. People who have been frustrated by the the lack of support that they've been receiving from Rome. They don't have a social network really going on in, in the ancient Mediterranean at all. Uh, so it's very difficult in many ways to recover from this sort of experience. And not to mention the kind of exposure to personal danger, to personal assault that comes along with slavery. That's sort of a, a routine part of that kind of experience. So the increased danger that Rome represents in certain ways because of Roman militarism is something that has tremendously disadvantaged large swaths of the Mediterranean population. Is this what drives, particularly in this instance, enslaved people to revolt? I think that the enslaved people who revolt in the, the three wars that the Romans fight against them has to do especially with people who are living in rural environments and experiencing slavery. There's a real distinction between urban slaves, especially urban slaves of rich people, and those who are living in agricultural areas, producing huge amounts of food and so forth. And particularly, I think, those who are involved as herdsmen in pastoralism for the Roman economy. A lot of these people seem to be just kind of cast out with the herds with not much in the way of resources, not much way in the protection, and just go fend for yourself and bring back the new generation of cattle or sheep or, or what have you. So there's a, a strong lack of care for these people, as well as a lot of opportunity, since they're away from a lot of oversight. And that seems to be really important in the, the two Sicilian slave wars that seem to be sparked by the maltreatment of these particular people. And I suspect those people are also providing a lot of recruits for Spartacus and his gladiators once they break out from Capua. How much of a threat did such uprisings actually pose to the Roman Republic? Were they afraid of them? There's some evidence that on a minor level, their rebellions, breakouts, uprising in localized areas that are happening every few years in the Roman Republic. And we can trace them in the second century BCE. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that Hannibal had invaded 
and the entire peninsula was traumatized by that experience and and disadvantaged by it. And Rome is not able to, to keep control of those things. That said, these major uprisings that cause significant damage to cities that wreak havoc throughout the countryside and that cannot be contained initially by the sources that the Romans are able to throw against them, that they're able to defeat those sources, right? Makes it really scary. I think with Spartacus, the scale and the sweep of the rebellion as it manifests is incredibly threatening for the Romans. The fact that it follows so closely on the heels of a different kind of civil war. And bear in mind, clearly some people were calling the Spartacan War a civil war. Uh, Many of our sources are very insistent that it's not a civil war. It's not. It's a slave war, which suggests that Well, you know, it's an issue for some of them, a really sincerely felt issue. Now, before we really tap into that, I think we should probably backtrack ever so slightly. Now, Spartacus went from being enslaved to being a gladiator. Could you tell us a little bit about how this transition happened and what we know of his gladiatorial career? Gladiators and blood spectacle is becoming really significant in Roman politics in the second century and first century BCE. So there are more and more gladiators because it's something that that matters to Rome and matters to Roman politicians and their constituents. There are people becoming gladiators from a number of different sources. Some are sold as gladiatorial slaves from the Mediterranean slave market. Some are prisoners of war and go directly to become gladiators. Others are volunteers. But the agreement seems to be with our ancient sources that this is kind of a difficult thing to do. People are vulnerable when they are gladiators to the training as well as to the actual experience of combat in the arena. Even the training itself involves danger, And not just danger, but humiliation. You have to submit to punishment that comes along with this kind of strenuous training in combat. And along with that, the gladiators are required to take an oath. Clearly, this is the case with the freeborn gladiators. To allow themselves to be beaten as part of their training. That's something that Roman citizens prided themselves on not necessarily regularly being subjected to this kind of physical violation. Uh, So there's a taking up the habits of performance, a performance with edged weapons, being wounded potentially, putting on a show. It's difficult and strenuous and is also perceived by many people as deeply shameful. These are people who are putting their mostly naked bodies out there to be seen by the public and to bring the public pleasure. Uh, For a number of elite Romans, this is akin to prostitution, and it's something that degrades those who participate in it. So where does Spartacus fit in this picture? Do we have any sources of him that particularly highlight what he was like as a gladiator, whether he was particularly popular or not? The most we can say from our sources is that he was sold as a gladiator, We have some indication that he was sold in Rome as a gladiator to be trained as a gladiator. Someone who comes with military experience already in hand has some, you know, assets to to bring to this 
kind of position too. One of our authors connects his personal physical strength to his ending up as a gladiator. Another connects his criminality to it a bit. And we should remember that being condemned to be a gladiator was part of the Roman judicial system for certain kinds of offenses, uh, condemned either to die immediately in the arena or to risk death constantly as the member of a gladiatorial troop. Spartacus and a number of other prisoners make an escape. What exactly happened here? One of our authors is careful to absolve the escapees from violating their oath or, or whatever, claiming that they were treated unfairly by their lenista, uh, Lentulus Batiatus at Capua. Supposedly, they were confined and held for combat. They were not allowed certain kinds of freedoms, minimal as they must have been, that they were regularly accustomed to. And they didn't deserve this punishment, supposedly. Uh, that's the tweak that, that definitely Plutarch is taking with this. So a number of them planned a, a breakout here just to remove themselves from that situation. And then it built from there. 200 of them supposedly were putting their heads together, conspiring as to how they might do this. They were then informed on and they had to move too quickly. Uh, so only a few of them, 70, 80, something along those lines, were able to actually get out of there. And then they hightailed it to Mount Vesuvius. Okay, now how did that go on to become what we know as the Spartacan War or the Third Servile War? How did that transition happen? I think the transition happened because of the success and to a certain extent because of the experience of having been on Vesuvius. Uh, some of our authors say that they're starting to pick up recruits as they make their way to Vesuvius. They manage to get weapons for themselves, maybe robbing wagons or, or other people who are you know, well-armed in the vicinity and establish a sort of base for themselves. They start talking about leadership. They're clearly talking about their plans uh, for the next step. And others are coming to join them, whether it's other gladiators or more likely other slaves and dislocated people in the vicinity, some of whom might also have had military experience given what's been going on in the Roman world. And so they make their way there. Uh, they're talking about, you know, plans. They're getting a sense for leadership. It's Spartacus as well as Crixus and Enemaeus, two of his junior commanders later on, as we'll see. And then they're surrounded by a Roman praetor who's at last been sent to, to deal with the situation. There aren't that many paths leading to the top of Vesuvius at this point in time. And we should also remember it's not an active volcano at this time either. So they're able to cut them off and to besiege them in the heights. And there's interesting stories about how, you know, they managed to find a way down by weaving together vines uh, from the grapes being grown up there and finding precipitous cliffs that they could make their way down while pretending that, you know, they're still up at the top and they're still carrying on with the vulnerability to the siege. And then once they get around, they go around behind the Praetor's forces and attack him unaware and are able to succeed against him, trouncing the forces of the Praetor. And they go on and fight more forces being sent against them immediately, also headed up by other praetors from Rome. Astonishing success. And because of that astonishing success, I think they awake a sense of possibility in other people who are unhappy, tremendously unhappy with the Roman system. Again, 
recent rebellions going on in Italy. So people come to them and it kind of builds from there. And once you get tens of thousands of people, maybe some opportunities for just disappearing into the hills of Eastern Italy are shut down for you because you have other kinds of needs that have to be met with that many followers. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the people who actually joined Spartacus and rebel with him? What were their backgrounds? You know, I think we can tease out some little tidbits of information about those who were following Spartacus. They weren't all gladiators, for one thing. That's something definitely to keep in mind. A lot of them were farmers. Some of them may have actually had some military experience because the hungry need of Roman imperialism to always be recruiting had been drawing in conscripts from throughout the Italian countryside for many long years. But it's interesting to see a few women among them. Uh, we're told, for example, that Spartacus' wife, whose name is not actually given to us, was with him when he was sold as a slave in Rome. And with him later on, when he broke out from the gladiatorial school, uh, she apparently was a prophet in her own right. So while he was sleeping, she saw a snake around his head, and she interpreted this as the working of fortune in his life, TK or Fortuna, you know, for things that are good, that are powerful, that are formidable. He had a destiny to think of. There's also this other really interesting tidbit, and this takes place late in the, the war, where the Spartacans are you know, being cut off by Crassus in the, the toe of Italy. And they're alerted to the danger of their situation by a couple of women who've separated themselves from the rest of the Spartacans. They're doing something off in the field, doing something that may be female business related to menstruation or something like that. Or maybe they're doing something religious. There's a, a ritual component that, that some people do mention it. But they see what's going on, you know, and they go back to tell their fellow Spartacans. So there are women there. There are people who are not necessarily soldiers. There are all kinds of people. There were up to as many as 120,000 people following him at some point. So there's definitely a mix of all kinds of supporters who are following for many reasons of their own. What do we know about their long-term ambitions and I guess short-term goals as well? One of the questions that people often ask about Spartacus is, did they really think they could win? Uh, this is something that, uh, that occurs in the popular version of Spartacus all the time. Could we ever have won? And could they? Who wins against the Romans at this point in time? Relatively few. At the same time that this is going on, Rome is fighting a war in the eastern Mediterranean where the people there have organized a rebellion against them that managed to kill as many as 80,000 Romans in different locations in one moment. So a huge massacre. And they still did not win. The Mithridatic Wars were victories for the Romans, as it turns out. Who could win against the Romans at this point in time? And is winning what they imagined? Is what they planned to do win? There are hints of uh, maybe escape that they might have had in mind at some points in time. When fighting against consular armies up towards the, the northern frontier of Italy... I don't suppose you could tell us a few of the major moments of this war. I think it'd be good to probably contextualise a few of the points. 
after their experience at Vesuvius, the Spartacans managed to have a number of successes against a series of Praetorian armies that are sent against him by the forces in Rome. Now, these are not the top-grade armies, but a lot of the top-grade armies are busy on other fronts at this point in time. And there has to be sort of scrambling to conscript enough people to fill these armies. Maybe, again, these aren't the best armies. I'm just saying that there. But they are being led by the top leadership available in Rome at the time. And again and again and again, the Spartacans are able to achieve success against them. To the point when the Romans decide, we have to commit our consular armies to this as well. So the consuls for 73 get their armies together. They pull in some resources from the province of Gaul beyond the, the Alps at this point. And they have a showdown against the Spartacans in northern Italy. And they lose. The Romans lose to the Spartacans. Now, it's costly to the Spartacans, too, because Crixus and Enemaeus, his Chief sub-commanders are destroyed in these efforts. But there's kind of a turning point at that moment as well. They've achieved tremendously against the Romans, and they're fairly close to the borders of Roman control. And there's this choice that could be made, and we're told that Spartacus was in favor of them dispersing beyond the Alps, and maybe fanning out from there, beyond Roman control, finding lives for themselves to live away from the utter dominance of Rome and away from the gladiatorial arena. But they don't make that choice. And the question is, why not? Why didn't Spartacus march on Rome? Why didn't Spartacus march on Rome? The Romans were afraid that he would. The Romans were always afraid of people marching on Rome. The Romans had been marched on in their distant past. In the early part of the 4th century, the Gauls, the horde of Gauls, angry, marched on Rome and destroyed Rome, sacked Rome, tore it down. The only time it ever happened. But the Romans are paranoid about it ever afterwards. And so there were rumors that Spartacus was going to march on Rome, uh, specifically after Spartacus had destroyed consular armies. You know, the way was clear. He could have marched on Rome. The way was also clear for him to escape over the Alps. He could have done that. He didn't do either of them. And supposedly it was because, one, there was dissension in his ranks. They were fighting over what they were going to do next. Uh, some of his people were much more interested in looting and pillaging in Italy than they were in actually marching on Rome. Or he was concerned that it wasn't going to work out for them, that they weren't ready, that his efforts to march on Rome would trigger some sort of showdown. He'd meet a lot more really skillful resistance and a lot more threatening leaders of Roman forces, and he wasn't going to be able to succeed. So he decides not to. Later on, he decides he does definitely need to have some sort of civic base. So he takes the city of Thurii uh, so that they have some place to rebuild and rest and restore and so forth. But he doesn't take the city of Rome. So the taking of the city of Rome that the Romans had been afraid of for so long doesn't actually happen until pretty much after the fall of Rome. And there's nobody there really to take at that point. I think it's at moments like this that you can almost see that glimmer of hope. Could they have beaten the mighty Rome? 
And I think this is where this question comes of, is there a world where this uprising could have defeated Rome? With all that in mind, can we say that the uprising actually achieved anything? You know, focusing on this as a military uprising in some ways is sneaking into the lens used by the Roman overlords, right? If the war is won, then Rome is successful and Rome goes on. Uh, the Romans were very good at warfare, and certainly the Roman elites spent a lifetime obsessing about that. But that's not life for a lot of people. Uh, that's not the be-all and end-all of human existence for substantial numbers of people who are living in the ancient Mediterranean. And we just don't know their stories, right? What are their expectations for life? The question then becomes, uh, how might they have measured success? the gladiators and Spartacus's followers. Well, it got them away from what they had been doing before, which was clearly not making them happy, to, to say the very least. The fact that they were able to, to beat down the oppressors, even for a few years, was quite a thing to achieve. And if you're talking about people who are measuring success in terms of posterity and how you're remembered by your family, by other people in the world, by society, by Rome. Well, they certainly really did succeed in that because remembered not just by Rome, but by us as well. And this is something I really want to touch on in a moment. But before we do, drawing on what you've spoken about, what can this tell us about Spartacus's leadership? What were the secrets to his success almost? Clearly, Spartacus was able to unify people. He had some kind of charisma that was perceivable by his followers. Someone who is concerned as well about the long term, the way in which he thinks about their experience as a group. There are stories about how at one point he forbids gold and silver from coming into the town that they're occupying at that moment. And that's understood on practical grounds. Uh, he's more interested in getting iron and bronze and brass and so forth. Things can be converted into tools, into weapons and that kind of thing. But it also takes on a moral tone in our sources. He's leading an ascetic lifestyle, right? He is discarding luxury items. That's not what he does. That's not what he needs. And it's not what his people uh, need. It's not going to do them any good. Right? So someone who's concerned along these lines. Some of our authors talk about how he doesn't seem like a Thracian, uh, by which they mean he doesn't sing like a barbarian. Uh, someone living on the fringes of the Mediterranean world, he seems like a Greek, like someone who has a strong and prestigious cultural background and is able to think uh, along a number of different pathways and bring those together in an analytical way to, to figure out how to work this, how to make this succeed. He seems pretty crafty too, able to make the best of a bad situation toward the later part of the war. Crassus is blocking off the Spartacans by digging this enormous trench off to, across a narrow part of Italy. And they figure different ways they can make it hard for them and different ways that they can actually get around it and escape from the trap that Crassus is trying to, to set for them. He's aware of his men's morale too. And there are various times that he does things that they need to do, that they want to do, that gives them a moment of, of feeling the perception of success and, and enjoying it at different points in time. 
Supposedly, he refused to accept deserters from the Roman forces as well. And that might likewise be a sort of morale thing, not just for his people, but for the Roman forces too, to shut down that possibility uh, for those on the opposing side who might likewise have some bad feelings about their Roman overlords. So what actually happened to Spartacus? What do we know what happened after the revolt? The end of Spartacus is something that we don't know as much as we would like to about. Most of the authors just, you know, know that he died at some point. A few paint a sort of interesting picture of the last battle, the last showdown against Crassus, how Spartacus, who apparently had been among the cavalry in his forces prior to this time, kills his horse before the end of the battle and says, you know, if we win, I can get another horse from the other side. If we lose, I won't have any need of escape. You know, it's a, a statement of commitment to what they are doing at that point in time. He goes on to, to lose. And we don't know what happened to his body. It was not ever recovered to have a, an example made of it or anything. There's one example of some sort of teaching effort uh, slash revenge by the Romans. And that has to do with the, the treatment of the 6,000 last survivors who were rounded up and crucified on the Roman road between Capua and the city of Rome as an example. This is, of course, the, the pathway that would be taken by troop after troop of gladiators going up to the capital city in order to be active in the Roman spectacles. Uh, so it's something that's it's meant for them. Uh, but it's also a fairly heavily traveled roadway in Italy in general. Now, earlier you touched on the legacy of Spartacus's tale. And I think this is something we definitely need to talk about. How did the legacy of Spartacus affect the contemporary Roman world or that region in later centuries? I think we need to, to keep in mind that this is not the end of rebellion or revolution or uprising for the Romans. There's another couple of generations in the Roman Republican period that are going to be filled with all kinds of turmoil. A lot of it rising from the same sorts of causes that we think are flavoring and, and feeding into the, the slave rebellions. And that's the, the disruption caused by Roman imperial militarism. People feeling like they are not getting their due or people feeling resentful of Romans for having crushed their spirits. So this infests Roman politics in the capital city, where again and again you have conspiracies, threatens to overthrow the government, people who want radical change, who want things not to be the same, who see this as unsustainable as is, or people who just want to be able to do what Crassus, what Caesar, what Marius did, what Sulla did to attain those levels. It's a dangerous time too, because so many Roman military leaders are themselves being radicalized by this. People who have uh, sustained their military success because of the strong connections they have with their soldiers and the promises they've made to their soldiers uh, that their future lives will be different, will be better because of the military support they've offered to their generals. Uh, so those obligations have to be met and it's hard to do so. So they're unhappy veterans wanting their give ready to fight for people who will give them what they want, uh, ready to fight other Romans in civil war. 
if they get what they feel they deserve. How has Spartacus been seen or been utilised since this period? Spartacus, I think, was a sort of warning to Roman elites, a reminder that their slaves are dangerous, a reminder as well that gladiatorial combat can be risky in a number of different ways. Uh, So they seem to keep an eye on their gladiators for the next couple of generations a little bit more closely. But radical political change is ahead, and we definitely see different things happening uh, during the time of the emperors. We see a lot more paranoia among elites, where it becomes seemingly the norm if there's an unusual death happening in the private home of someone who owns a lot of slaves, then those slaves are going to be, at a minimum, tortured to find out what really happened with the idea that all of them could likewise be killed if this was found to be indeed a suspicious circumstance. So uh, the Romans supposedly thought that the number of enemies could be counted by the number of slaves in their household. There was this anticipation of hatred, of deadly hatred uh, for them. It's unusual too. Some of the Greeks talk about how many slaves the Romans have, individual Romans just have dozens of slaves surrounding them all the time as this kind of demonstration of power and wealth as a sort of entourage that's following them around everywhere they go. And yet, and yet, they are vulnerable to them. These are people who are, who are their body servants, who are around them in the bath. They could take advantage of that situation. And yet the payoff is not enough, you know, for them to, to give up that kind of lifestyle. I think many people today will be really familiar with Spartacus's name or or his story through the Stanley Kubrick 1960 film Spartacus, starring Kirk Douglas. But how well known was Spartacus's story before then? What did Rome carry forward into the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and so forth? You know, different bits and pieces of Rome survive. I think in the Renaissance, there's certain recovery of, of Roman stuff but not necessarily Spartacus. Where we really see that happening is in the 18th century with the Enlightenment, with a different sort of value of individual humans, when they start to destroy old aristocratic regimes and so forth, and to imagine a new kind of society where the state belongs to the people and the people belong to the state. And it's at that moment that stories like Spartacus's start to have a different kind of power than had been the case in the interceding centuries. Uh, So the survival and the possibility of the individual Roman spirit, the individual human spirit. So in France, especially, we see people putting together stage productions in Germany, stage productions in the 18th and 19th century, uh, focusing on Spartacus. Uh, they give him a family life. They give him different kinds of stakes in his outbreak from Rome. And they give opportunities for the actors to make bold declarations to the viewing audiences, too. Uh, we see this, for example, in the play Spartacus in the first half of the 19th century in the United States, where there were moments when the gladiators come together and declare, freedom, we will be free. And the audiences at the time, where we're a lot more participatory than some theater audiences, all get on their feet and start shouting, yes, yes, <laughs> this is this is us. We see this story. We feel this story. And we feel it is completely connected to our own sense of ourselves as, as citizens in a republic 
that revolted against tyranny and, and so forth and found our freedom. So uh, that certainly happens in the, the 19th century. It's embraced as well by the labor movement. And again, it's people who have been compelled to work with their bodies against their will. And it's related to, to anti-slavery movements as well. Breakout of a successful uh, slave army that was able to even briefly uh, declare themselves free from Roman tyranny. We, we see it having a, a certain power to the, the workers of the world and for early anti-capitalist movements in the early 20th century. That carries through into the mid-20th century in the Red Scare and, and so forth. Uh, we see people like Howard Fast, who wrote the novel from which the Kirk Douglas movie was made, and who himself was accused by the anti-American committee of being an, a rabid communist and dangerous to American society because of that. He wrote that novel while he was imprisoned by the uh, anti-American committee, right? Uh, the people investigating communism in the United States. Uh, that's when he began the novel. And obviously he's, he's living that experience himself to a certain extent. Obviously, to pick on a point of familiarity, perhaps with, well, at least with me, but perhaps also our listeners, we've, I think I've got to ask it, how accurate is that novel and therefore the 1960 film? I can tell you that I like the film a lot more than I like the novel. <laughs> Howard Fast was a very popular writer and a lot of people really like his work. I find the the kinds of hostility that he has in the novel to the Romans to be just over the top in many ways. He's drawing on a long tradition of anti-Roman, anti-imperialist sentiment expressed by people of his political persuasion, certainly. The power, I think, of the Kirk Douglas film is the way that it talks about identity. It presents the gladiators, and especially Spartacus himself, as someone who doesn't have the experience of an individual self-identity. He's always had his identity handed to him as he's being beaten into submission as a slave. So the way that he finds himself, his own strengths as an individual in association with the other gladiators is something that's really powerful. And I think, you know, the sense that they have of themselves as a group of people who can make a whole bunch of choices about their own lives once they break away from the gladiatorial school. That's a very powerful thing. And I think that's the importance of the key statements by Kirk Douglas is Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. Everyone says that now, except Kirk Douglas, you know, except Spartacus himself, because he's been so successful in bringing out from them their individualized characteristics that they share as members of this resistance group. And I'm guessing you're probably going to break our hearts and say that's that's unfortunately probably not what's in the history, but just a dramatic moment, I guess. We will never know what, what was going on at the private meetings of, of the Spartacans. I think you must understand. I think we all have to accept that, of course, they're making speeches that make each other feel powerful, that make each other have a sense of accomplishment, uh, that speak in some sense about how they feel now, this world before them and potential before them. 
What do you think have perhaps been some of the most interesting or surprising interpretations or retellings or just uses of Spartacus and his story? I must tell you, I do love the the Kirk Douglas film, but I also was thrilled in many ways by the, the Spartacus series on stars. The three full years and then a sort of prequel to the, the story of Spartacus. They had a lot more time to explore a whole bunch of things because it's a series. They also, I thought, were extremely thoughtful in their exploration of how power worked in the spectacle industry, trying to explore the ways that that men coerced and abused related to each other inside the gladiatorial school. I thought they did a really good job in drawing out backstories for individual gladiators, for Crixus, for Gannicus, for Enemaeus. They clearly read their sources too and tried to imagine how did these people find them there. And I thought they did a really good job in terms of identity, the distinction between the identity that's being forced on them by the spectacle system, the spectacle institution of Rome, and the identity that they have as part of their own backstory and that they develop as part of the rebellion as they come to know themselves in a different kind of way. With all of this in mind, as a final question to you, how do you think that we should be thinking about Spartacus today? I think an important thing about Spartacus is to try to remove him from the framing that has been set around him all these years by those who wrote about him in antiquity, who were opposed to him who were intent on suggesting his his shame, his degradation, his failure, the the impossibility of him in many ways. I think, as many of us agree, stepping away from the lenses, from the, the structures used for storytelling, uh, for deciding what's important and what's not about history, that have been established by imperialist colonizers who are not like us, is that's an important thing to do. And to rethink the story of Spartacus, maybe, by avoiding the top-down assumptions of those who destroyed him and those who wrote about him afterwards. I think it's something we should all embrace. That was Alison Futrell. Associate Professor of Roman History at the University of Arizona, and also the author of Blood in the Arena, The Spectacle of Roman Power and the Roman Games. Alison has also appeared on the podcast recently to talk about the gladiators of the ancient Roman world. Just search for gladiators, everything you want to know to bring that up. Thanks for listening to today's Life of the Week. Be sure to join us again next time to learn about another fascinating figure from the past.